So just imagine with me for a second, you are walking down Pennsylvania Avenue with Jesus, okay? And uh, you're from a small town, so you haven't made a, a lot of trips to that city. And you've seen the pictures, but this is the first time in person, right? You see the Washington Memorial and the Capitol Building and the White House. And in person, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And more than anything, right, in your mind, it's these pictures of, of the permanence of your country and your people and your culture. Right? You can't imagine a world without these things, these buildings and what they symbolize. And you're trying to make polite conversation with Jesus. And so you say to him, Jesus, aren't these buildings amazing? Look at this architecture. Is it not beautiful? And he looks around at everything you've just seen. And he says, you see all of this? It's all going to be destroyed. Not one of these buildings will be left standing. Brick by brick, they'll be taken down. Just wait. You'll see. And that is the bombshell that Jesus has just dropped on his disciples in the beginning of this passage that you just heard read. The temple in Jerusalem, the symbol of their country and their faith and their people and their history and their meaning, everything is tied up in this temple. And Jesus says it's a goner and he's right. About 40 years, give or take, from this moment when Jesus says these words, uh, the Roman Empire stormed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And the closest thing I, I could think of as I reflected on that in, in our lifetime of what that would have felt like uh, was when the towers came down in, in 2001. And uh, if, you were, if you were around for that, if you remember, it was like one minute there were these massive right, World Trade Center towers and they were, they were a symbol, they were a picture of our power, right? Our influence uh, economically and politically all over the world. And one second they're there and the next second they are gone. And if you remember, it, it almost felt like the end of the world. Do you remember that feeling when that happened? And that's where the disciples are right now. That's why after Jesus tells them what he does at the beginning of this passage, uh, they, they kind of pull him aside uh, in verse 3 of, of Matthew 24, and they say, tell us, Jesus, when uh, will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? Jesus, tell us what the end of time will be like and how we can see it coming. And Jesus answers their question basically over the next two chapters uh, in Matthew, and we're actually going to be in this uh, section for the, for the next few Sundays, uh, this idea of the end. We've been in a series in the last week of Jesus' life, and he spends quite a bit of time talking about this topic, which if I'm going to be totally honest with you, is not my favorite thing in the world. In some ways, this is like a pastor's worst nightmare um, because uh, passages like this are so hotly debated. There's so many ways people have uh, disagreed on, on what does Jesus mean and what current events line up with what Jesus is saying here. It's like preaching while walking through a minefield, which isn't my favorite thing in the world to do. And generally, no matter what you say, uh, you disappoint about half the room. So I don't know if it's going to be this, this side or this side, but <laughs> one of you will be disappointed. <clears throat> Not to mention that regardless of all of that stuff, we are just obsessed with the end as, as a people. And I, Christian or not, I, it's, this isn't a church thing. This is like, how many popular books and shows are basically about the end of the world? The apocalypse. You know, whether it's nuclear war or environmental disaster or zombie virus, whatever it happens to be, right? We're always consuming this 
uh, this idea. And it's just one of those topics that we all come with uh, baggage with. And, and, and then we come to it with a lot of fear too, I think. And I, I don't want to dismiss that or minimize that. And this is all, one of those things that uh, the entertainment industry, has, uh, we've, we've sensationalized. And a lot of the images that come to mind when you hear something like this are, are, are scary and terrifying. And it's, it's real, I, I get it. And this is also one of those topics that historically the church has abused. And I've heard pastors and preachers use the fear of the end times to fundraise and get people around the cause or whatever. And I know people who have left the church or the faith entirely because of what they perceived as an overemphasis on the end and figuring it all out and seeing it under every rock and reading it in every newspaper headline. So if you're hesitant this morning and you heard that scripture reading and you thought, oh no, I get it, I get it. But here, here's what stood out to me this week as I prepared for this. We, we tend to worry about events and dates and signs the end is near. We obsess over those details. But as we look at this passage today, I want you to notice something with me. When Jesus talks about the end, he doesn't seem worried or concerned about the same things that we are. He is not worried about dates and times. He doesn't give a ton of details. He doesn't give a step-by-step guide for believers to survive. The closest he gets to that is when he's, when he's telling us about the fall of Jerusalem, which some of this passage is about, but not all of it. He doesn't seem concerned at all, in fact, over how the world will end. He's much more concerned, notice with me, about how you and I will end. What is our destiny? Will we make it to the end without losing hope, without losing faith, without losing him? Because we can't make it to the end without Jesus. We cannot make it without him. And in our passage this morning, Jesus, he gives us three warnings, three, three warnings that as he thought about the end and how he wanted to equip his people, this is what he thought about. And we're gonna jump around a bit. I'm just warning you up front in this passage because Jesus is very repetitive of these three themes. Uh, he was very concerned that they make it across to us. So if you haven't turned there yet, uh, you can do it now. It's Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. I'll turn to the book of Matthew chapter 24. And the first warning that you, you really can't miss it. The first warning Jesus gives is this. Here's, here's how we're summarizing it. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. It's literally the first thing Jesus says when he's asked about the end. Look again at verse three. The disciples say, how's it gonna end? And Jesus says in verse four, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one deceives you. This seems to be Jesus' biggest concern for us whenever we think or talk about the end. It's not that we get the details wrong or our timelines are off. It's that we might listen to the wrong person or believe the wrong ideas and our focus will shift from him onto someone or something else. That seems to be his biggest concern. Here's what he says in verse five. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. And then he says again in verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then again in verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It's as if Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us through this text, from here on out, many will come in my name. Or they'll come promising the salvation, right, that I've promised you. But they are not from me. 
Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Don't believe them. And Jesus has good reason to worry about this because there have been false messiahs in every century, in every time, in every place, in every culture. And let me just give you a few names, okay? Judas the Galilean, Theodos, Rabbi Bar Kokhba. Have you ever heard of these people? Probably not, because these are failed deliverers from Jesus' day. But they, so today we look back and we say, ha, huh, what, what a bunch of crackpots. They led thousands of Jewish people astray, most of whom went to their death. Jesus even talks about the destruction of the temple here because he knows that someone will use this cataclysmic event as a platform for their own messiahship. When he says, watch out for the abomination of desolation, that whole section, right, coming into the temple, that's verse 15, that abomination coming into the temple, that's a reference to the Roman army coming in to destroy the temple. They'll blaspheme it by entering it. They're not supposed to go in. And he knows some opportunist will try to lead his people away when this happens in AD 70. That's why he spends so much time on it. He knows, in other words, that when things get bad, people get deceived. And like I said before, it's easy in some ways to look back on, on that time and kind of chuckle. Right? We, we wouldn't fall for that. And as a teaching team this week, even we wrestled with that. We kept asking ourselves, why is Jesus so concerned that people will choose some crazy person over him. Why is this such a big deal? Of all the things Jesus could have said about the end of time, why is this the one he focuses on? And I couldn't answer it until I realized that our false prophets and messiahs, they just look different today. They don't necessarily promise liberation or spiritual revival like they did 2,000 years ago in the, in the Jewish culture. Now, today, it seems generally they promise things like ease, and comfort and security. Where notice Jesus promises conflict and war and division and opposition and persecution. Okay, let me just give you a sampling of what Jesus says will happen between his first coming, which is this, and his second coming at the end of time. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, right? If you're trying to win followers, this is not the way to do it. And when you think about it that way, Jesus' concern that we might be deceived is much easier to understand. We don't tend to put our hope for the end in, in, in a person anymore, though there are cults and weird groups out there. That still does happen. But think about it this way. What about in the political platform promising peace and prosperity for all? What about the, in the promise of technology to solve our problems? Or the latest life-extending drug? Google is one of the most respected and thoughtful and influential institutions in the entire world right now. And they're, they're pumping millions of dollars into genetic solutions to keep people alive for thousands of years, if not forever. And this Newsweek headline is from last March. <clears throat> Silicon Valley is trying to make humans immortal and finding some success. The co-founder of Google, his name is uh, Sergey Brin. He, he is one of many tech 
uh, giants, leaders highlighted in this article whose goal is to cure death with technology. That's what they want to do. It is not science fiction. These are real people. These are people who think that the solution to our problem is, is to prolong life. That the way to make it to the end is to never end, period. This is dangerously close to Jesus' prediction, is it not? It's like Google's over there waving his hand saying, I am the Christ. I am the Savior. We will solve your problems. We will save you in the end. And who wouldn't, be honest, who wouldn't be tempted to pick that over Jesus? Of course we can be deceived. Of course we can. And seriously, is it, is it just me or does every political cycle, every campaign cycle, bring larger and larger promises that only this person or this political party can deliver on? Right? It's me or, or death and destruction. And the testimony of history is clear. It is not unusual to deceive a culture or a nation or a group of people into believing that this leader or this person holds the keys to the end of the world. It has happened again and again and again. Jesus says, don't be deceived. Stick with me. Only I can get you to the end. Let me pick on the church for a minute since I've picked on everybody else. <laughs> How deceptive is it when we have pastors telling people what they want to hear instead of what God says in his word? How easy it is to pick the church or the pastor who doesn't make waves, who doesn't challenge the beliefs or practices of the culture, even when they probably should. How easy it is to stay with that person over Jesus who will offend you at some point in your journey with him. I'm tempted to do that. And I'm a pastor. <laughs> of course we're tempted. Who isn't? Jesus knew that as things get harder, our temptation to compromise what we believe and how we live would grow stronger and stronger in his church. Jesus says, don't be deceived, don't fall for it. Only I can get you to the end. Okay, the second thing Jesus is concerned about for us, besides being deceived, is being afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Look at verse six with me. Jesus says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed. See that you are not afraid. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay, this is the second command Jesus gives. When he talks about the end, don't be deceived, don't be afraid, because he knew we would be. He knew that the things happening around his disciples and would continue to happen for millennia after this moment would be terrifying for people. And every generation from this moment on, notice, has believed they are living in the end times. Have you ever noticed that? It's because of fear. And again, who wouldn't be afraid? Jesus basically says, things are only going to get worse for my people. He looks at his disciples, he says, I know it's not too bad right now, but soon you will be arrested and executed and persecuted and opposed for following me. Nations will hate each other and they will fight wars. That's bad enough. Every nation will hate you because of me. And he, he was right. Persecution, opposition have followed the church everywhere it has gone from the beginning. We have people uh, right now this morning 
uh, just in a room over here in our, in our lobby praying for the global church and particularly for the persecuted church. You know, we partner with the church in Iran, which is one of the most persecuted churches in the world. Now, CNN just uh, reported that Christian persecution in particular is the highest it's ever been worldwide in 2015. The highest it's ever been for 2,000 years. Millions of people are suffering for Jesus right now, and Jesus knew it. He knew this would happen. Listen, I'm not, I am not saying that the end is now. I'm not saying any of that, okay? For Jesus, honestly, the end times started the second he was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. The world was put on a clock that second until he comes back. We are always in the end times until Jesus returns. And he even says in our passage today, he says, there will be wars and rumors of wars, but don't overthink it. That the end is not yet. Jesus basically says, when the end is here, you'll know, trust me. But he does say, no matter what, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because he knew that our greatest temptation outside of deception would be fear. And why shouldn't we be afraid? What sane person would not be afraid? We have just concluded the bloodiest century in human history. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Syria, ISIS. That list could go on and on and on. Last hundred years. We now have a weapon that can wipe out the entire human race. Okay, why not be scared? Jesus hints at it here. I don't want you to miss this. Look at verse 14. In the midst of all this, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Here's, I think, why Jesus puts this here. He says, yes, the temple will be destroyed and Jerusalem will fall and eventually Rome is going to fall too and you will be persecuted and opposed and you'll be betrayed and you'll be hated, but my gospel will go forth and my church will endure. So when these things happen, you don't need to be afraid. I've already won. It's already done. You have nothing to lose. Now think, I want to put that in context for you, okay, this promise. Jesus says this to 12 guys on a mountaintop days before he was going to be crucified. How ridiculous does that claim sound? Can you imagine being one of them, listening to Jesus, and you're looking at the other people around you like, this is it? Like, this is, this is the plan? How ridiculous a claim. Jesus, right, he's talking about geopolitics, the rise and fall of the most powerful empires the world has ever known up to this point. And he looks at these Jewish fishermen and says, but we are going to change the world. Don't worry, don't be afraid. You will outlast. This message will outlast the temple, this country, this empire. It's ludicrous. But for 2,000 years, Jesus has proven himself over and over and over again. And yet, I am still afraid. I am still tempted to hole up and to shut down, to protect myself and my family, to, to fear for my children's future, to fear for our country, for my freedom. I am still afraid. Are you? Jesus' words, they, they kill me here. He says, when lawlessness and wickedness increases, he warns, as things get worse, love turns cold. He says that in verse 12. 
in my fear of what is to come as my love turned cold, as yours. Some of you are here, you're, maybe you're not a Christian and you can't stand Christianity because it seems like we think about the end and the judgment and all that stuff so much that we're no worldly good at all. This was Jesus' concern too. That our love would turn cold when it was needed the most. See, in times like these, as, as it's been from the beginning, it is so easy as Christians to turn inward, to forget our calling, our mission to the least of these, the foreigner, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, the minority, the vulnerable, that the fears and the priorities of our culture in which we live do not set the tone, do not dictate our mission to be the hands and feet of Jesus until he comes back. That is our mission. In the mid-third century, uh, there was a terrible plague that devastated the Roman Empire. Devastated the Roman Empire. And uh, St. Cyprian was a Christian leader uh, in the city at the time. And he's recorded a lot of the details of, of what happened during this time. He estimated that 5,000 people died a day in Rome alone from this plague. Can you imagine living that? You'd think it was the end of the world, wouldn't you? They did. The Romans did. They thought this is it. And the emperor at the time, his name was Decius, he blamed the Christians in his city for this calamity. He thought they, they had either cursed them or a curse was upon them because of them. And that persecution increased because of this. But that theory of the emperor was undermined by, by two really inconvenient facts. One is that the Christians died too. They had no special place. Well, the second and more important one is that where everyone else in Rome who, who had the means fled from fear of death, the Christians stayed and they cared for the sick, including their pagan neighbors, those who did not share their faith. And historians like Rodney Stark, they've highlighted stories like this along the way to explain how Christianity spread so quickly in the Roman Empire. How did that happen? When it, here's, here's how it happened, okay? When it looked like the end was near, only the Christians were not afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, I will win despite everything happening. I can get you to the end. But don't let your love turn cold. Don't let fear-mongering and war and rumor of war stop you because I am always in control. Nothing can happen to you that will ultimately hurt you. Rome will come and go. My church, my promise, my gospel, my victory are forever and they're for you. Don't be afraid. And don't give up. This is his last warning. Don't give up. He puts it this way in verse 13. He says, those who endure to the end will be saved because he knew it would take endurance because this stuff wears on us, doesn't it? This may have been especially true for Jesus' disciples in, in, in this story. In, in the Jewish worldview, you have to understand, in the Jewish worldview at this time, when Messiah came, that was the end of the age. He was gonna usher in a new age of God. That was how they looked at Jesus. That's why they keep asking him, when's this gonna happen, Jesus? And part of what Jesus is doing here is preparing them for the fact that yes, I am the Messiah, but no, the end is not yet. We're gonna spend more time on that gap, that delay next week. 
with Jesus. He spends a lot of time on that. But he knows in this time between, he knows where we are right now, everyone here, where we are right now, before he returns again, we will be tempted to give up. To live an easier life, an easier path, to avoid the pain and the discomfort of following someone who leads to division and opposition. How tempting it would be to go through the motions on Sunday and be someone totally different on Monday or hide our faith, hide who we are from our neighbors and our friends and our co to give up how easy it would be. But he says something here I don't want us to miss this morning. He says, don't give up because these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Did you notice that? That's what he says, the beginning of birth pains. That's in verse eight. Now, having been in a room where a human being was born, I had to wonder, why does Jesus say this? So I thought about it, and I'm convinced there's nothing more painful on the planet than giving birth to a child. I don't know that from direct experience. I do know it indirectly. And I still can't really wrap my mind around that whole process, and I, sometimes I really don't want to wrap my mind around that whole process. And you know, you know how doctors make you watch that birthing video before, you, you know, before you're ready to go to the hospital, and it's just like the most evil thing they could possibly do. <laughs> It doesn't prepare you for anything at all. It just makes you scared. And they always show the, the mom who, who decides not to get the epidural. Like that's the story they want you to see. So you get the full effect. I promise this is going somewhere. I promise. I, <laughs> right? And it's just hours and hours and hours of mom pacing the room and pacing the halls and looking miserable. Right? And this is the moment Becca looks at me and says, you get me that epidural. That is the one job that you have. You make sure that happens. <laughs> She didn't say that, but I would have after watching that video, right? Childbirth is excruciating and it's prolonged and it's difficult. It was no doubt more so in Jesus' day. And it increases in intensity right up until the end. But here's the thing about labor that is different than just about every other human ordeal. When someone finishes a marathon or a medical treatment or whatever, Right? One of the first questions we'll often ask that person is, well, was it worth it? Right? Was it worth all the training? Did you, would you do it again if you had to? You never ask a mom that, do you? Why? Because we all know that the pain of that moment pales in comparison to the indescribable joy and love of seeing your child for the first time. No one needs convincing about that. And if you've experienced this before, if you know what I'm talking about, Jesus says the end of the world for the Christian is like that. It takes longer than you want. And it's more painful than you would have chosen. But it ends in joy, unimaginable, indescribable. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. That's, that's Jesus, the Son of Man. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And Jesus here, he's saying, You'll know it's the end because I will come in my glory for all to see. And I will gather you up, my church from every tongue and tribe and nation and the pain and the suffering of the childbirth will be over. 
the joy is only beginning. So don't give up. Don't lose sight along the way. Don't be afraid. It's worth it. Only Jesus can get you to the end. And only Jesus promises that the end is joy. So stick with him. Choose joy with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of comfort from your scripture. Thank you that we know in your son our victory is sure. We need not be deceived. We we need not look anywhere but to him. We need not be afraid. And we have the strength to endure because we know our destiny is joy. Father, in this time between, help us to cling to those promises, to be a people of love in a world that is so desperate for that. By your spirit and power, as we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.